It is estimated that 75% or more of all silent films have been lost forever. Negligence, greed, malice, and war have overseen the erasure of the majority of films' earliest years. But all hope is not lost. Long-forgotten films are being rediscovered in the unlikeliest of places. For the first time in over a century, we are able to return to context these previously unknowable works. It is our job to write the next chapter of their histories. Ashes to classics, rescued from oblivion. Welcome back to Ashes 2 Classics, the silent movie podcast where we are loud about silent film, recovered silent film. That is, I'm Stephen, with me as always is David, who you know from the introduction, and today we are continuing German Expressionism with a discussion of Algo Tragedie der Macht, or Algo Tragedy of Power. Tragedy. There's no, there's no soft cheese in German. Oh, there you go. Well, but you just said one in German. Yeah, well, that's a Deutsch, you know. Ah, so there are no sort. soft G's in, there are no soft G's in German. Got yeah, it. Yeah, there you go. Just uh, try and keep that up for the rest of the show. <laughs> so, going back to German cinema. Um, <laughs> so, this this film um, was one I was completely unfamiliar with beforehand. Um, I don't think is hugely notable outside of a star. Yep. Um, the creatives involved on my very quick letterboxing of don't seem to be. Hugely notable, especially for my limited knowledge of, um, unless you are going to, to wow me with things. I mean, Han, Han, Hans Werkmeister. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's got Werkmeister in his name, and that makes me go Werkmeister Harmony. It's a movie that I love, so there's that going for it. Right. But apart from that, this seems somewhat unremarkable. Um, as far as I can tell, yeah, I've, I've come to a similar conclusion. Looking at uh, Hans Werkmeister's page here on IMDb even, I could look and scroll through all of his films. And there's only one that even has a poster on it, so that would be this one yeah. we're discussing here. <laughs> so yeah, uh, not a very well-known or even influential, well-remembered German Expressionist film, but one that has uh, endured, it's been uh, preserved and uh, restored by the uh, Munich Film Museum. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, they found it significant enough to hang on to. And of course, there was the uh, allusion you had to the one prominent player in the star, yes. Emil Jannings, who... Who I'm sure we'll talk about later. Yeah. He, he will be the, the main subject uh, through which we kind of contextualize this film and further uh, highlights of Weimar cinema in general. So, to jump the gun, perhaps, is one of the reasons why perhaps this is somewhat maintained and kept and thought of because it is nascent example of science fiction? Yes, I would say that is also another primary example in which it's pointed to. I've got a book, I think it's the, the BFI book I have from, okay. uh, when we picked up there, that said, that, that kind of pointed towards Metropolis as like the first, you know, science fiction film. I was like, well, that's just very not true yeah. on so many fronts. Yeah. Not even the first, you know, German silent film, uh, science fiction film, as we can see here. So it's it's always weird how people are so quick to claim those those first. They really want to slap that label on to films mm. to make them a little more shiny and important. I mean, there is there is so much iconic stuff around, around Metropolis, but I've never even, like, anecdotally thought about it as being, like, the progenitor of science fiction. Like, that's is, is that a thing that it's widely seen as being? I don't know. Like, just, even, just, like, just talk about trip to, uh, a trip to the moon. Just Melies, yeah, I mean, like, is, is a yeah. primary example of one that works. Like, if you want to get more specific and be like, oh, first feature 
Yeah, like because but... again, we we just want to dismiss short films as a you know part of the medium. But even then, it's still very likely incorrect and provably incorrect, as we can see here from this film. Surely, there's an earlier Frankenstein as well. Surely, yeah, there must be a, yeah, a the Edison adaptation. That... The Edison Frankenstein, yeah. uh, which was also itself uh, only more recently kind of discovered. And but uh, I guess the the conventions are less there in terms of yeah what, what we kind of come to see with science fiction. And this film uh, definitely has some of that those trademarks a bit more that we see and i think the comparison with metropolis will be interesting to go over more in depth yes it's kind of an immediate comparison point that we can see a lot of similarities through i'm sure you do very much get metropolis without this film i'm sure they do not exist in in, in a causal relationship but this this definitely feels like a a step towards metropolis there there are things in this film in terms like the grandeur and the i think what I like about this, and like to a much greater extent in Metropolis, obviously, because Metropolis is one of the greatest movies I've made, is the the usage of kind of like high science fiction as a way of like capturing everyday realities, but also like the, the industrial layer of the idea of like class and labor struggle as abstracted through science fiction is really, really interesting. And I also like how in both they use kind of like the science fiction scope, the idea of there can be planets and worlds to create stronger allegory, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that the allegory in this film is confusing or confused. It is a way to make your story have a wider impact to take on this idea of being like, there are aliens that link to this, or there are multiple wider nations. It's a way of like scope gathering that I think, that I think works for it. And it's obviously, I think we don't see it in science fiction anymore because it's a, a genre in its own right, as opposed to a framing. Right. Uh, yeah, science fiction, like horror, I think, which, you know, very similarly got a boom mm. in the German Expressionist movement, was very right uh, for exploring themes through symbolic uh, gestures, through, yeah. through large symbolic representations in particular. So that's why we see them flourish, and we see those examples really endure from this period as well. So, yeah, it's interesting to see an earlier one in here that is already kind of capitalizing on those means and those visuals to express something wider. Do you think it's quite inherent to film? Because obviously film is so inherently technologically driven, um, that sense, therefore it, because, and again, this comes to the lack of acceptance of film as an artistic medium at towards the point we're talking about. I mean, we are getting onto it because that's kind of like one of the, the modus operandi of, of general expressionism is to, to gain that wider appeal. But that sense of, we know technology can do this now and exist because technology, and therefore that, that I think, causally does lead you to think, then where is technology going? And I feel a lot of the science fiction films this time are about what is next technology, and this one very much is, is obsessed with what does le- what does me- mechanised labour mean, in the sense that we have mm-hmm. mechanised art or art coming out of the mechanical. I mean, if you look at the machine, we get more to talking about the film itself. The machine that creates the motion is, is, is projector-like in image. Yeah, definitely. Like, seemingly purposely so. This idea of film forward thinking, of making the viewer think about the mechanized present as a step towards the mechanized future. Do you think it's more intrinsically linked with film as a burgeoning medium or mm. the technical revolution that was happening at the time period? True, and, true. And the evolution true. And of everything. Of that, yeah. yeah. Is, is it more yeah, in it, connection with that in, as opposed to film in particular? I think totally. If, if if you've got like the Victorian novel rising out of the Industrial Revolution and that as like the the polemic to that, then this age of 
of the further mechanized obviously is going to have this like huge artistic expression and i think science fiction is 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 the great new genre for it to expand into yeah certainly yeah i certainly agree but uh yeah so to dial it back a bit before we get too much into the movie uh let's Mm. talk about the, the kind of again as we pointed out here the magnifying subject that brought us here which is the uh, actor the well-recognized german actor emil yannings how much do you know about him steven um i know he's in movies that i should have watched and haven't Um, yeah that's that's the thing i i am going to you know what i'm gonna watch the last laugh tomorrow tomorrow because it's shorter than i thought it was yeah it's actually it's real nice and as i said kind of last week maybe in like a peak you know uh german expressionist film really encapsulates mm. what the movement could convey and maybe again as a medium as a whole i tend to point of it as one of the shining examples even more than the other more renowned uh renowned Murnau films that he made so i'll tell you about emil yawnings though because i know a little cool. bit <laughs> i mean i've seen i've seen him in faust but would not have known to have seen him in faust i know that he's in faust i know that i've seen faust really oh like yeah it, well, one um, of those things where like one actor you know who has a stand-up performance in one film you've seen doesn't necessarily give you the sense that they are a widely recognized yeah. actor within the history of things but then the more you watch those films the more you see oh these people keep popping up and uh it's not just a coincidental thing it's uh, as i kind of mentioned last week as well like the Hollywood system, Germany film industry yeah. was very much Germany, built around. Yeah, Germany's film industry was very much built around significant players. There's a quote here I have from Krakauer, which says, "While Hollywood cultivates stars rather than ensemble effects, and the Russian cinema often uses laymen as film figures, the German mm. the German film is founded upon a permanent body of players, highly disciplined professionals who adjust themselves to all changes in style and fashion." I mean, this may not surprise you, but in the Berlin Film Museum, there was a corridor room and adjoining corridor that was just the Marlene Dietrich yeah, um, yeah. part, um, which is which, which was great. Um, and it's that idea of the attachment to the star is, is obviously very, very, very core cool to um, cinematic expression. It's kind of ironic with Dietrich because she had one very significant German film that put her on the map and then immediately went to Hollywood, <laughs> where, where she became a, a, a huge symbol of... Mm. Germany in America, but very obviously she was, you know, she's a very American presence in terms of actual, like, output, impact, but always retaining a German identity. It's definitely a thing. So I watched and witnessed the prosecution um, with my family recently, and they absolutely loved it. But um, I had to explain also that there was a a very meta role for her of, like, the audience is, is very aware of her as like a figure as a controversial figure that they may not want to believe or may not want to like there's like there are there are things here that i was like father brother mother you need to know this by the way <laughs> and this will this will add to what's going on here she's really wonderful i love her mm. <clears throat> but uh one of our com- contemporaries Janings, of course uh he was a mm-hmm. swiss-born german actor who rose to prominence through theater first before becoming one of the most recognizable talents on the screen in both Weimar germany and hollywood later on a very significant career overseas. But like many actors and directors who came up in the industry, of course, you know, you get your start in theater. That's where a lot of people, they they, uh, they make their rounds before. And there's one really, really important name in the German film theater at the turn of the century that's going to be important to know about. It's going to come up a lot as we go through these various personalities. So uh, write them down if you need to. His name is <laughs> Max Reinhardt. Okay, okay. That's a name that I've heard. Max Reinhardt was basically the theater impresario of the Germany scene at the Deutsche Theater. And just about everyone we're going to talk about 
brush shoulders with him in some way or another. He was really well renowned for all the productions he put on, often using trickeries of the stage and for guiding large groups of crowds around and such. And you see that influence, or at least a lot of people point to that influence from him onto subsequent directors like Lubitsch and Murnau and such, okay. as being other people who are familiar with him. But Yawnings was uh, one of the people who ended up becoming one of his regular actors, as, as amongst many of them there did. And so that's where he kind of got his start in the theater, rising his way up and becoming more recognized within the theater scene as the decades kind of rolled on into the comings of the First World War. As cinema began to prove itself a lasting medium in the early 1910s, but not yet an art form undeserving of derision, producers began to lean on established actors to obtain a great veneer of credibility. So the German films began to take from the same well as the Italian, French, and American had already they took from the various theatrical works and the talents that were already established there to produce adaptations to lend that for yeah. artistic credence, kind of, you know, as we've talked about before. Which gets to our Faust and our Nosferatu, um, which are still kind of like holy cinematic texts. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, Yawning Star first rose thanks to two consecutive successes with Ernst Lubitsch and the similarly rising star, Pola Negri, who was a Polish actress who also had many collaborations with Lubitsch and then went on to have successful uh, works in Hollywood as well. And all three of them did a handful of films that really put Germany on the map. I know we talked about it last time when we talked about Caligari kind of being this flashpoint, but uh, they were getting recognized already. It's just those those films haven't really lasted as much. But okay. the first German film to be released after the war was a film called Madame du Berry, which was a historical drama about the French Revolution directed by Ernst Lubitsch and starring Emil Jannings and Paul Negri. Uh, a year prior to that, they had done another film, Lubitsch's first foray into dramatic direction for film, and it's called Diagen der Mumima, which is The Eyes of the Mummy, a film I watched, and you don't have to. Okay, good. I mean, I have a history of watching mum movies, and most of them are bad and racist. Yeah, no different. I can promise you, no mm. different. <laughs> It's uh, quite dull, but Polo Negri stands out. Again, like, just okay. these, these actors establishing themselves and these, you know, very undeniable screen presences. That's the thing with this this system, though. I mean, this is a thing. I mean, obviously, I am, don't want to bring it up so much, but we've, we've, we've talked about films. So, I mean, the jazz singers are a film that I watched recently that obviously you, you, you've seen a while ago. Yep. And the problem with this idea of like these star-focused films, you have to go, but this person's good in it, or isn't this person a presence? Because they so trade around being like, there's always going to be one guy in there, you're like, that guy's really, really good. They're always really, really good. Because they're in all of these movies, and they're great. And you're like, however, this happens, this happens, this happens, they're reprehensible. Hmm. I, and that's how the system works, but yes, yeah, annoying. You know, it's, uh, for me, I, I find I'm able not to feel as bad about it, I suppose, because, you know, I'm able to kind of, register all these as the kind of historical record these yeah. are these are the films in which they're establishing their talent they're getting recognized you know they're standing out above uh, all this other crap here and then they're getting True. further better roles because of that and then they make their iconic impacts afterwards this is you know wading through the mud to get to the gold at the end there and so yeah. long as we don't ignore the mud and we acknowledge it yes. and we discuss it and we don't you know talk around it then there's no reason not to highlight the greatness that's kind of being fo formed within it, you know, so to speak. 
One thing I'll take you back to just a second. I, I presume you've seen this, but it interests me that making this point that these early films were going back to literary classics. I presume you've seen Contempt, the Goddard film. You presume wrong. Oh, there you go. I presume because it's got Fritz Lang in it. And, and what it reminds me of is that movie is about Fritz Lang um, adapting the Odyssey. <laughs> so it's interesting that that, that, that is the, the through line there of the linking this idea of the how do we give credence to these great arts? Well, we adapt the great arts. That is and that persists into the, into the French New Wave as well. I've fought the urge to watch it solely because That's I very know Fritz good. Lang's in it. Oh, I, I, I'm sure. But like, I need to get to more Godard. I feel like I, I will yeah. feel bad if I just go to that one just because I'm like, ooh, Fritz Long, you know? I need to see. It's, it's, I need it's to see actually a really good. It's a really good starter, I think. Of, okay. It's, it's, I'm, I'm not the biggest guy. I've seen loads of his movies, and I really like him as a figure. I've seen 28 um, Godard movies, but actually ranked. This is the kind of insufferable nerd I am. I ranked the. The French New Wave directors in my head the other day, <laughs> and I think I had them as like last or second to last. Oh, oh, um, that's only because I just like the rest of them a lot. They're, they're all they're all brilliant. It's a period of film that, that, that I adore. Low, um, lower than uh, Truffaut? Um, just below Truffaut. I'd put. I'd put just Interesting. Below yeah, because people typically uh, they, they kind of poo poo Truffaut a little bit, don't they? Oh, they do. But like, Forge Blows is utterly outstanding. Day for Night is is so cool. And I, I just really like that whole um, Stolen Kisses Onwards, that whole like, 400 Blows series of movies. It's just it's really, really lovely. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll talk about more about that on our French New Wave podcast. Uh, let's get yes. back to the G- German expressionist one here. <laughs> apologies, apologies, apologies. No problem, no problem. So Yannings became a kind of go-to star for a lot of the historical epics that were coming around now. He went on to portray you know, people like Henry VIII and Peter the Great and... Uh, George Danton in various adaptations of historical works that became very yeah. big alongside some of the more expressionist-oriented uh, films of the era and what were called uh, costume film, or they're just basically period dramas at the time. Yeah, Most of these films, though, all these uh, kind of historical ones, uh, they kind of fallen by the wayside. Nobody really cares about yeah. them. Uh, you know, I've, I've watched them. They're okay sometimes. The historical films are not the ones that have uh, lasted for, for the German cinema of the time. But they did resonate with the audiences for the time and they got his star high enough that he started uh working with some of the most uh, celebrated directors of the time perhaps even the most celebrated director in his terms of a partnership he began with uh, uh fw Murnau. okay and, and that's where the last laugh comes in then i guess the last laugh uh not to mention tartufa and faust he also mm. worked with uh ea dupont in uh variety you know these are all big name German films from the time period, and these are the ones that have lasted. These are the ones that still continue to get play and recognition. And Yawnings is probably the most consistent star of all of the Weimar period. You will see him in more of these films than I think any other actor from the time period. And is he often seen as like one of the key appeals of these films as well? I think so. It's not so. just like a correlation. Excellent. Okay. I cool. think I think so. Definitely. You know, I'm sure you can recall him from Faust as uh, he plays Mephisto there, and he's very theatrical i mean yes i've not watched faust for a, a long 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 time but yes i mean i remember the character so therefore i guess by default i remember him well i guess to to describe him as an actor he is very grand in terms of what he's able to perform but his facial acting in particular is often quite nuanced it's not just this kind of mm. overly theatrical you know hammy acting uh i'd almost never accuse yawnings of uh, hammy acting. There there are exceptions, of course, but even in some of the 
kind of worse roles like the mummy film i referred to he still has a, a great amount of depth that he's portraying even as he's doing mm -hmm. it through uh kind of caked on brown face makeup so <laughs> okay <laughs> but yeah so that's that's one of the uh kind of significant appeals of him there he feels like a real stage actor bringing a lot of gravitas to the screen in his roles and he mm. uh, he carried that on with him as the prominence of films like the last laugh caught the attention of the americans and american studios and he was his talents were poached to to come over and make a series of films for paramount oh interesting so in 1929 yawnings became the first ever recipient of a best actor oscar oh wow he is the first oscar winner a dual award for his performances. So is this from the first Oscars then? Yeah, from the very first Oscars so that's, in 1929. That's when there are two best pictures, isn't it? Because that's the um, Sunrise and Wings. Oh, yeah, it was like a most outstanding picture. And the and artistic picture. Artistic, yeah. So that was yeah. uh, Wings and Sunrise one. In, I've still never seen year. Wings. I've, I've watched the first hour of it and then just got busy and never got around to watching the rest. I need to restart watching it at some point. Also very good. Now that you have a newfound love for Clara Bow, I assume that you will enjoy mm. it more. That's, that's, well, that's why I was watching it for that reason. And then just don't have the time to fit it in. It's, it's long. It is long. It's very long. It's a big uh, war epic, you know, done for about World War One, And it's, it's a, but it is phenomenal in terms of the action. Everything like shot on real planes up in the sky and looks at it and again in terms of spectacle and also feeling the the impact of that all of the battle stuff's really great but the story itself isn't sacrificed because of it i think it's really good uh it it's, definitely... it's got that one shot that everyone's seen that one shot yeah that yeah that's seen, the, the one shot through that beer hall there you go um i like the larissa shapitko film wings there you go that's a good movie from the 60s mm -hmm. those are not the films that yawnings won for the though <laughs> yawnings won for uh acting in Two two roles actually. They they gave they awarded okay. him for two films, which were the Victor Fleming directed The Way of All Flesh, and uh, ah. jo Joseph von Sternberg's The Last Command. Yes, The Way of All Flesh is still a lost film. We don't have it. it doesn't exist. No, it has gone The Way of All Flesh. Yes, <laughs> but the latter can still be appreciated for Yawning's full throated commitment to a rather bizarre melodramatic role as a disgraced czarist general now working as an abject movie extra in contemporary Hollywood. <laughs> That's that's the sounds premise fun. of sounds fun. Uh, I, okay. The Last Command. Maybe I'll watch that. That sounds good. <laughs> sounds good. I do like um, the precedent set there of giving because it, it it makes me think of a while ago. This is a stupid bring up, but there was that 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 Amy Adams um, double hitter of it was Arrival and something else. Nocturnal Animals. Can't remember. I, everyone I think being like everyone being like, oh, she's competing against herself, and they just just didn't get nominated for either because it was that sense of being like, oh, because you're competing against yourself, so you just don't get in for either of them. I mm -hmm. do like the, no, this is for both. Good job. Uh, you know, it was at the time kind of very, like, disorganized affair. Like, these films came out in 27 and 28, respectively. And, you know, the ceremony was done in 29. Yeah. So it was kind of just like, uh, what well, you know, again, like, it, even from the beginning, Hollywood was basically just looking for whatever to give out to laurels to whoever they thought, felt deserved it or the insider oh. trading there. So that's basically what it was. You know, it's essentially just, oh, you know, the, Yawnings is such a great actor this time. We should award him. What were, what were those things he did recently? Yeah, yes. I mean, talking of historical examples of people being like, what? Do you, have you heard about how when Sight and Sound put out their very, very first top films list and everyone was really mad and like, they got a letter to be like, how dare you name Bicycle Thieves the greatest film of all time? It's only just come out. What are you talking about? How can it have this thing? Which now looking back, it's Bicycle Thieves. Like, they, 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 they picked a good one. But mm -hmm. it was people would at the time being like, ah, oh, recency bias. It's wild. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. I'm glad we've moved past that now and nobody's uh, mm, butthurt mm. about anything recent being recognized. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Mm. <clears throat> so, after Yawning's time in Hollywood, though, he, uh, he went back and he followed it up with what some, i.e. me, might consider his thespian apex. Mm. So, Ufa was looking to make Germany's first sound feature an undeniable success. They wanted it to be the biggest thing, so beautiful, so artistic, so grand. So they, they wanted to have the last laugh. <laughs> so what they did was they imported a celebrated American director at the same time Yawnings was returning to his home country. That celebrated American director happened to have just directed Yawnings in The Last Command. It was Joseph von Sternberg. Sternberg Yay. came over and with Yawnings directed a, uh, it, was a it was a star vehicle for Yawnings. It was called the Blue Angel. Yeah, beautiful poster is is what I know from this of just a iconic image of cinema that I see in shops all the time. Yeah, and what is that iconic image, Stephen? Is it well? Is it Star Emil Yawnings in the film? I get, I get, I guess, I guess so. I guess it's like him staring with with Dietrich. Oh yeah, I I would say that the latter part there that uh up up and coming starlet who uh, nobody knew anything about prior to making the Blue Angel. Ended up kind of overshadowing Yawnings in this uh, yeah. tour de force film, I would say. And, of course, the subsequent collaborations between, you know, the story of the, the Blue Angel and Sternberg's infatuation with Dietrich and then his tutorship of her throughout the subsequent uh, half decade that they worked together in Hollywood uh, kind of has eclipsed the well, what I think is Yawnings' best role. And again, in, in, in a terrific sound performance you know after a career of such a silent magnanimity well the the, the place where I, I got the beautiful corral poster you can see behind me in this room they did have a, a wonderful german blue angel poster so i was just like oh that looks nice but i didn't see the movie so i was like i can't get that it, it is a, a it is a worthwhile film to check out it's a film about a uh how do i characterize it it's, it's, it's a grand melodrama about love and, and deceptions of the heart i think and you know, kind of, uh, you know, this is kind of ideas that they came from. It's it's one of those cantina films about a a portly uh, school tutor who ends up falling in love with this nightclub singer and how his world kind of unravels inadvertently as a result of that romance yeah. and these uh, kind of misplaced affections. And I should see more Sternberg. I like Shanghai Express, um, but I did not love. Um, so I would would like to to love a Sternberg. Those film. those films, I I would say, uh, most people can agree are inconsistent qualitatively they're the highlights yeah. you know people tend to point towards shanghai express and the blue angel is you know kind of this this first one that gets yeah. rolled in with the rest of them as these big high points but there's something of quality in all of them they're all very interesting and sternberg's direction remains very singular in yeah. in hollywood again kind of, kind of standing out with these european and you know inspired influences i think back to a podcast you were on with your pal um pavlos talking about um i forget what the actual movie was um but he was watching sternberg movies at the time and, and he made the point that they were more interesting to him as like a collection of films mm -hmm. as any singular film and that actually has a point to say really really stuck with me that idea of like that a, a director's oeuvre or like the way their films interconnect not even like narratively interconnect but the way like a, a body of work becomes the fascination there so that that was the statement that got me going like oh i should check this out they stylistically interconnect for sure mm. and again the the repetition of dietrich in similar roles kind of out in variations 
I think really uh, cements that idea of them as a series of works kind of playing on one another and him continuing to just kind of work around her yeah. as as a conduit for his artistry. It's also kind of noteworthy that on some of the later films, he was the cinematographer as well. So he was really okay. shaping them from a visual standpoint in particular. Which goes back to the immaculate point you're making then. He's like, just consummately made films. Makes mm-hmm. sense. So the, the Blue Angel obviously was a significant film for him and for Ufa and the German film industry as well. A big bang getting into the sound era there. But Dietrich Starr really ended up eclipsing him there. And the the rest of his career never really came back around, mostly because of one major reason. So, you might be able to guess this, but unlike many of his contemporaries, Yawnings opted to stay in Germany when 1933 ah, came okay. <laughs> Uh So, ah. al- alongside other major actors from there, like uh, Werner Krauss. So you're telling me the brown face actor was a Nazi. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Him and Werner Krauss and uh, a couple of others. Not, not as many that have... St- did the test of time, uh, became mm. one of Nazi Germany's most prominent film actors, uh. starring in a number of infamous propaganda films, uh, the most notable from my research probably being Om Kruger. Ugh. Grim, grim, grim. So, as an active participant in the Nazi regime, he uh, received lots of merits for that, but his career did not survive after the post-war occupation. His reputation faded into obscurity. Good. Having forever tarnished the legacy of his contributions with the heinous crest of the swastika culminating his career. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. That is a, a big contrast with some of the other stars I'm going to highlight here. And in particular, as we've talked about with Dietrich a lot, she was very vocal in her criticisms mm. of uh, Yawning's choice to stay behind and become a, a chief propaganda. Always liked her. Always, yeah. always liked her. Always liked her. Yeah. Dietrich, very, very anti Nazi. I read in her book, I think one of her biographies from her daughter that, I don't know how true this actually is, but but she, she had suggested going over to Germany and, like, seducing Hitler and then killing him in the bedroom. It's like, <laughs> like, like GoldenEye. Like yeah, yeah no, that was like her plan, because she was still a very popular <laughs> actress, and uh, yeah. she she contributed by doing lots of shows overseas, and she even recorded I mean, that's songs not... in, in German, like, that they would blast towards the the troops as a form of you know demoralizing not dissimilar to some parts of i mean more extreme but uh to be or not to be when there's the the seductive heart of that that gets yeah. the german officers so <laughs> german sorry um, yeah okay interesting interesting so yeah that's uh the brief history of emil okay. and his uh history in german and american cinema dare i say it's more interesting than the film dare i say that i did I, I think you know what i dare i dare you know, there's um, there's a lot more interesting films in there that's definitely worth uh, talking about and highlighting more, and I uh, certainly will implore you to check those out. But mm. it's not to say that Al Gore isn't interesting. I like in Al Gore. I like it. I, um, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it, it, I grappled with this a little bit in my review because it's like, when read literally, and it's very tempting to read it literally because, like, the story is not as outlandish to us now as perhaps it was then because we are so used to much wilder science fiction, I think. And also... The idea of nationalized or mass-produced energy is, I think, not as alien to us. Doesn't seem like a a wild like science fiction um, premise. It seems like a, an eventuality that could could just happen. That's one of the more, I guess, unintentional issues with the film. Like its ultimate yeah. message is, you know, don't use renewable energy 
save yeah. the coal industry, <laughs> which, which today, is that, so, which is today is like, yes. ah. <laughs> so when, when, when read literally in a way that it was never meant to be, the film is just like, sorry, what is that? Basically, the idea that renewable energy is from the devil and therefore yeah. should be rejected. <laughs> <laughs> and that the workers must do. But I mean, but when taken as an allegory, like it is very much the message of through hard work and collaboration comes rewards, that there are no easy ways out and that we must like, I, d- I don't know if I 100% agree with the logic, but it's attempting logic, this idea that, that progress is always should be fought for or is, is worth fighting for as opposed to like the easy ways out. I think there's a, there's a bit of a naivety to that. It's a little bit condescending in points, but it's a, you know, a, a laudable message that is nicely articulated. I think you can accuse a lot of broadly allegorical films of naivete. Mm. Uh, I yeah. think that's, that's kind of natural. As Maybe a natural inherent instinct. to the allegory, yeah. yeah. So. When, well, when you boil something down to a very simplistic, you know, yes. one-to-one idea, you're going to end up being kind of reductive in yes, a lot of the nuances. Yes, when you say blah, there. it's basically blah. You're like, yeah, okay. Yeah, well, again, same thing as if we try back to Metropolis. Is, is Metropolis a very simplistic and naively messaged film about the coming together of the industry and the the capitalist yeah yeah it's it's ultimate message is kind of like head in the clouds you know daydreaming nonsense yes but but that doesn't you know take away from i think the spirit of the message and again the the execution of it ultimately. no and, and and metropolis is is so vibrant and like visually evocative and like visually poetic to as has been given multiple readings to to uphold multiple readings, this does not uphold multiple readings. This is very clearly here is the story of it, and the very basic story for those that have not watched is so an alien from from the planet Algol gives a star. Man it's a star. This, it's a star. Sorry, it's a real star. star that we both discovered while watching the film is an actual yeah, yeah. star in I think Orion's belt. I don't know. There you go. So yeah, it gives the power to. And please correct me at any point because it's the story is very very thin, but spread out over a decently long movie for the time, gives the power to create just energy. Yep. Um, so the guy, rather than just gifting energy, decides to use his ability to do so as like leverage over the world to kind of like give himself like authoritarian power. He pulls the I, the alien pulls the device from somewhere i don't know if you caught yeah. this like did he just have it with him after he came I think down so. i think it was just like just like hey here's my here's my little magic projector but like it, it wasn't like he was holding it somewhere it's just like in a scene he's like oh yeah by the way here you go and it comes after like a lengthy time of him like ingratiating himself with the coal yeah. worker because uh emilia Onings plays like a, a coal worker in the, in the beginning yes. of the film before inheriting this device from the alien it's, yeah if, if if the worker who was part of the collective was given the grand power i mean I, this film comes up to me a lot recently i know that you have seen it but like it, there is a bit of like hudsucker proxy to this of like what if you what if you take this one person and give them too much power and bad things happen um i would rather watch the hudsucker proxy but i kind of i kind of wish we got a little bit more of the backstory i would have loved to see like the board meeting with the aliens then of them mm. finding the patsy to hold on to the infinite power while they wait for their, I don't know, the, the, it, I guess if we're going to make it Hudsucker pro, Proxy, we wait for it to turn over into the new year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, no, it's really just the aliens, just a, a a conduit for, you know, the, the the symbolism there. Like, we need to give infinite power somehow, so yes. we'll give it to this arbitrarily created alien force. Tem- yeah, temptation pass is given it on. to this person. And it's yeah. like, yes, you could use this for great good. And he's like, what if I didn't? 
And then also the conclusion becomes that obviously resentment grows against this person because he's holding the world ransom, being like, only I can provide the power. The world gets used to the kind of power that it can produce, etc., etc. So they become kind of like bound by that. And then his son, is it? Um, yeah, wants son. to rise up, but then it's clear that the son is also. This has a very dour view of human nature that everyone is like in, in, inherently corrupt, which he, I don't subscribe to personally, but it's, it's put across so simplistic in mind. So then he's like, I'm going to just destroy the device and therefore destroy temptation and go back to good old fashioned coal. Mm-hmm. And that's the movie. Yeah, I'll forgive the, the coal stuff because that's obviously just the contrast it's going yeah, to use yeah, and, yeah. The, and the, the main source of energy, I suppose, at the time period. So it makes sense. It makes sense for what you're telling here story-wise. But, yeah, um, you know, I always think that simplicity is kind of one of the chief and greatest assets of silent and visual storytelling. That's but true, yeah. But it's, simplicity is usually used as, as a means of being concise and carrying through yeah. something clearly. The simplicity of Algol feels empty is I think the biggest yeah. issue with it. It's like, it's very broad and simple. And I think that comes more so from its lack of characters. There are plenty of films. Because it's not, it's not a springboard to any like, therefore the, the narrative is loose or lacking in a way to allow other things to float to the surface. But mm-hmm. it's more as like, the sets are really cool. And the scale of it is, is, is really quite fantastic at points. And I do find it very visually compelling. And dare I say, the parts of the movie I enjoyed the most is the last 20 minutes where I didn't have subtitles anymore because it was in German. <laughs> yeah. Uh, un- unfortunately, because we only have so many resources available and I could not acquire an actual copy of the restoration. I had to go off of whatever people have uploaded to YouTube here. We had yeah. a version that had closed captioning for about all mm. but the last 20 minutes. And then we were on our own from the first. Oh, there's just a YouTube comment on that video being like, do you realise there's 20 minutes of movie missing? I'm like, please, man, respond to this. Where is the last 20 minutes of this film? <laughs> so we were able to, yeah, see the last 20 minutes, but uh, without the subtitles there. So oh, unfortunately... Yeah, there's a version that does. Yeah. There's a version yeah. that does, but it's cropped and like blown up. So it's like, I wasn't watching that. So... Yeah, I read the plot summary and then watched the movies. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, my German isn't good enough yet, where I can communicate to you exactly what everything says. Mine in those is last absent. Yeah. So the beautiful thing about silent film is that you can usually yeah. get a sense of most things without needing all of the dialogue, I suppose, not needing to read everything. And and I think I got it, but I think I got it. Yeah. Long before those last twenty minutes. <laughs> uh, I yes, felt... no. But also, they keep holding up newspapers and stuff, and I'm like, I've never what that says. Did I? Yeah. I think the biggest detriment for me enjoying it more beyond the, again, very broad characterization of things and very hollow themes yeah. and allegories was just a really belabored pacing. I think the beginning yes, is, the is first, so like, long. 30 minutes is just like, and also because we're so used to science fiction being something else, I'm like, what? what is this? Like this is this is not Metropolis. This is not like the, like the grand like futurist vision that I want this to be. Yeah, it, it starts off well, I think really well, because it starts off with this kind of very small prologue establishing like the, the kind of history of the stars and such and these mm. observations of this one in particular. It's very artistically rendered with up in yeah. the sky and you see the different people throughout time observing it. And I love that as an opening narrative device in a lot of films. I love just like, let's go through the ages and see how these yeah. things has been told to us or interpreted over time. I think that's a really cool way of setting the stage but but yes. once yeah once we get to the the narrative proper it just takes a very long time for any actual action to take place yeah. it's just the pacing of the sequences of the 
execution of action is just so drawn out you know it, it the whole prologue is just the introduction of the coal you know industry and the alien coming down which is fine and artistically <laughs> you know a, a thing and then him ingratiating himself with the coal miner and then him showing him the device but then like he hangs on to the device for like device looks a so year cool, though it does it, it as you acknowledged earlier it's very filmic in that it's like a projector it looks mm. like that so it's kind of looking that way but well you know one of the, the chief things that was kind of interesting about the film what drew my eye to it when i first found out about it was of course the very expressionist caligari-esque painted backdrops and stuff oh, that beautiful. you can see I love them. and that doesn't come in for like an hour you know it's no, like it's... an hour before you get to that because it's all hidden away behind the store again like he, he gets the device we cut to like a year later and he's still like sitting on it, basically waiting to harness the energy yeah. and unleash it for the good of the country, and you know, for and and to export it to the rest of the world. Partway through, there's some really good footage of like actual factories that is quite um. Don't like the camera swoops like through this like line of like industrial machinery. That's a good way of pointing out what science fiction can do of being like here's actually like a what if look at the present using the present as springboard for. For your what if future stuff, that stuff's really awesome. Look at that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like that. I like seeing all of the ways in which they've rendered this kind of mystical-looking yeah idea of a, a perpetual energy being manufactured behind this secretive door that he opens. It's yeah. very interesting the way that's done, and then you got these big gears that are drawn, and again, this very expressionistic style. It's all really cool, but it's a very yeah. small part of the film. Yes, it is. I. I don't know, I also just like the obsession with power in both ways, of like the power that is electricity and like power as power. It, it, it's very of the time, obviously, in terms of like the technological fascination, but it is an interesting thing. And, you know, a lot of those things, I mean, <laughs> I don't know what the US is like at this point, but we are live in a, a real crisis in terms of like power at the moment in this country. Um, so that still being like prescient concerns about who owns the power supply, what power comes from that in the wider sense, what that means. Mm -hmm. Seeing that articulates back in the 1920s as a degree of being like, you know, flashing back 100 years and being like, yeah, people still worrying about the same kind of things and express kind of ideas can be a sense of solidarity sometimes, which is quite appealing. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. Uh, I'll say for the US, I would say regionally, there are definitely some areas that are more affected by that. I would say particularly mm -hmm. in the Texas area where they've had what was that two or three subsequent winters where power has gone out i think that is yeah. probably very very relatable because they're yeah. their whole ju just the one state's on a whole separate grid from the rest of the country okay so and uh they're the local government mm, doesn't really seem to care about uh, addressing be, that. yes mm. so yeah definitely some very interesting contemporary echoes there yeah. that continue and uh, yeah i like what you said there about the power of power and power you know in, in mm. terms of a more humanist you know controlling sense uh it would be nice if the film hammered more on that idea and those yeah. parallels and again uh I, it's it's biggest issue coming from the lack of characterization kind of rendering its tyrannical figure as yes there is a, a tighter a more theatrical that. movie that the sets lend themselves to and the narrative lends itself to but the film does not become yeah i i think it's a real weakness in uh writing primarily mm. it's it's not a not a performance issue. No, yeah, writing and direction. Writing and direction because it's it's poorly paced out, like we said. Yeah. And it, there are good performances in here. There's great ideas and there's yeah. great visual execution, but yes. 
it's just not there thematically or you're, you're not getting a sense of this again when when we talk about something like metropolis who do have these similar figures representing power and corruption and tyrants there there are more than that though they are yeah in, individuals with relations to other they have seemingly individual motivations and characteristics that create a wider sense of interrelation as opposed to just being vessels for the allegory well it's been an interesting couple of episodes hasn't it because we've got one one film from morn to midnight which is so very much in the shadow of caligari in a way that points out how brilliant caligari is and then we've got this that's in the shadow of metropolis that again points out how brilliant metropolis is and there's real world it's i don't know i've conversations with people sometimes where they talk about being because you know you watch a lot of things a lot of varied things and some people are of the opinion they're like try to watch great things all the time but i often find it is with these films that you really find out why things are great. There is such a value into watching the lesser or less successful version of something that mm-hmm. kind of like sharpens your way of, of realizing things. The, the the foil to something else as a way of working out, this takes that way and you find more brilliance in Metropolis, you find more brilliance in Caligari because the ways these films don't quite make it there. You know, I try to avoid lots of comparisons uh, when talking about film because mm. I feel that we should recognize the films on their own level and uh, shouldn't have to pull in various other counterpoints and things. But there's lots of cases, and, and particularly in this show, where I, I want to take opportunities to highlight other films from yeah. know, the, the very similar, because the podcast is not just about resurrecting these lost films. No. Uh, that's, its, that's its primary focus, but it's also an educational tool for the wider history and influence of silent cinema as a whole. And so if this is a good stepping block to talk about something as magnificent yeah. and successful as Metropolis, then that's really wonderful. And I want to continue to do that. And I don't mind bringing up the, the comparisons there. And yeah, it, and I think it does highlight as well, again, going through these more forgotten ones that the successes and the ones that last are not exceptions. They aren't singular yeah. in terms of their history. There were plenty of others doing it. They were just the most lasting and influential ones uh, and again in, in the case of something like metropolis and you know despite not being a financial or critical success at the time one of the interesting things that i uh i guess before we completely move on from it here is that i did want to highlight that i i did like about algal was that it's very specifically talking about power uh, as a yeah. as a nationalist idea yes and no definitely it is very specifically that the the tyrannical figure is wielding the power and accruing more power through the means of emboldening the nation uh, of them and, in a way, enslaving foreign countries, other nations otherwise, which I found was a very prescient uh, way of framing things for Weimar Germany. Yeah. Which is, again, it goes to what I saying at the beginning of the podcast, of it, the scope given to film by science fiction is, is really interesting, of by having the star of Al Gore being part of the universe of this film, the literal universe of this film, it therefore allows this film to talk on a national scale very, very easily, because then you can incite multiple nations come together in a way that in any other film would feel monumentally above the stakes of that film. So science fiction is this, this great widening of the genre, because it's not science fiction the way that we, that we think of it now, mm-hmm. um, but it is so to, to add scope and therefore to allow that kind of like nationalist and therefore imperialist message to come through, um, which again, well articulated, I like it. Yeah, and, and again, it's in a critical sense, it should be said mm. that the film yeah, is... Yeah, 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 no, definitely. ...contextualizing this here. 
And it's very interesting, I think, because, like, obviously you don't have to go that route to tell this story. You don't have to make his weaponization of this infinite power source that he has a means of enslaving the other countries and, you know, uh, forcing their hands from an economical standpoint to It definitely gets to into the... resource colonialism and neocolonialism, this idea mm-hmm. of you can exert power over a place that you technically are not, you have not formally, you've not like set boots on the ground in that place, you are not controlling it, but if you control the resources or take the resources from it, then you exert influence over it in that way. And that's very, very ahead of the time in terms of like that degree of thought. And doing so through the language of ostensibly the benefit of your people of, of the nation. Mm. That's that's kind of his big rallying idea there, is that he's, uh, what's he, he gives a line about making sure that the, the coal workers are no longer having to work, but not depriving them of bread at the same time. Yeah. So it's it's very much this idea of we are going to be exploiting the other nations of the world to the benefit of you people of our country yes. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's a very interesting lens for which the film to contextualize this story through, particularly given what's going to happen in about 15 years. Yeah, I, for 1920, it's a really, a really interesting context, this film to exist in. And I do think that speaks to some of Krakauer's theories that he had about, yeah. you know, the German mind and kind of how it was be considerate of authoritarian ideals at this period. Again, both for and against. Mm. That we yeah. kind of talked about last week. It's it's very clearly yes, an the, example the, the of the topic how, persists. Certainly, yeah, yeah. How this idea is is just kind of ruminating around in yeah. a lot of the the German psyche at the time of what kind of leader would or could do for the nation, and again in both a good and bad sense. So that that is an interesting uh, example here through Algol that we see another flavor of that uh, mm. the tyrant film. That, that he spoke about. Yes, true. But otherwise, the themes are so broad that it's uh, much harder to engage in, I think, throughout, uh, in, yeah. in, in an enjoyable way. And the pacing is such that I I felt thoroughly ejected before even the halfway yeah, point. No, I, and I, I, and I never, found a, never found another entry point back in. Yeah, it is nicer to talk about and do think about than it is to actually experience and watch. Um, but no, I was, I was still very happy to have seen it yeah. uh, again. The no, I, I quite like it. I think I think what it's doing is interesting to me, and I'd, I'd always take that above anything else. Yeah, yeah, and again, I'm just very interested in it from a historical perspective. Another great example of the same kind of expressionist imagery. Again, the thing that brought me into it to begin with yeah. these very verbose depictions of unreal. I, ideas in in reality, I think is yeah. I really like how it looks. I love like the the triangular kind of motifs and those like like corridors and stuff. It's 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 a really striking, really cool looking film. Yeah, you know the artistic movements of the twenties and thirties. They just persist. I think they still stand the test of time. Even mm-hmm. you know just a little while later, with a lot of the uh, how some of these same influences went into Art Deco. I think that that stuff still looks great. So yeah. I'm always all about that, and that was a big hook for watching this, and uh, Yawnings, yeah. of course, being an interesting actor. Uh, oh, I guess, uh, yes, yeah, since he's our subject here, did you have any thoughts about him as an actor, this being your your second experience? Um, I am now very excited to watch The Last Laugh. <laughs> Hopefully that will make more of an impression. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I actually thought, as mentioned before, all the acting is good in this movie. There's lots of, like, emotive theatrical faces being allowed to be emotive and theatrical with their faces. Mm-hmm. Um, a star that I enjoy. I don't think it's a great measure for him. I think uh, it exemplifies much of what he, uh, what, at least what I kind of identify yeah. as in that he brings as an actor. 
but uh, I don't think this is an example I would go to for, for someone who was like, can you tell me why Emil Jannings was been such an enduring actor of the, the silent period as a whole, not just of German expressionism. Yeah. So yeah, uh, lots of other recommendations though, if you're interested in him. Again, Last mm-hmm. Laugh and uh, the other Murnau films, Tartuffe and uh, Faust, I would go to as primary ones. But he's definitely worth kind of investigating. A, 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 another actor who had a lasting and nominal impact at the time, but has since kind of been forgotten. I will say, not unrightfully so, being a Nazi and all, but... Yeah. Um, but still, for his impact... But, it's, but it does seem disconnected from that, though. It's not like... Yeah, no, no. Yeah. He was... Yeah. Uh, he he is not retained in the public conscience, I would say. Well, well maybe partway because of that, because at least with some of the Hollywood actors who lost their luster with the coming of sound, they still had the the glamour and the nostalgia to kind of reinvigorate their legacy. Whereas uh, once you go Nazi, you don't come back and nobody, you know, is kind of interested in retaining that uh, uh, luster of your faded star. So yeah, I I would say that was definitely a factor in why he is not so well remembered today, but also just because these films aren't discussed as much as maybe they should be. Yeah, no, 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 true, true, true. He is one of many people who uh, have not persisted in the public consciousness and without the others caveats, perhaps should have done because of like different style. And also I think it's easier to, to reject and forget German film when there has been such an American kind of like overbearance of the, the popular conversation around film, mm. of the spread of the Hollywood system and, 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 and the like. So yeah, I agree. More. More focus on the non-Nazis, but more focus on... Oh, on don't worry. Next week, I have a great non-Nazi for us to talk mm. about. We're so, going to... Tease it, tease it, tease it. What I would call the, the other side of the German actor coin of this time period, in the form of uh, Conrad Veidt. Okay, who, yeah, yeah. Who you may be familiar with, or may not. He was a perhaps even more prolific, if less celebrated, German actor of the time period, who also went on to have a career in Hollywood but did not go back to the Nazis. Yeah, I've seen, yeah, and I've seen a few, a few, a few Conrad Veidt things. Well, yeah. and by a few, I mean two, and it will be three. I'll just give you a little bit of a tease here. His career is bookended, I would say, by two major films. The first, mm-hmm. a starring role as the somnambulist Cesar in Dust Cabinet to Dr. Caligari. That's what I know him from. And at the end, and then playing the Nazi official Major Strasser, in yeah. the renowned classic Casablanca. And those are the two that I've seen. So there you go. There, Those are the interesting bookends of his career. And yeah. next week, we'll get into the various in-betweens and how he got from one to the next. Well, that'll be very, very interesting. But until then, whilst you are awaiting our next episode, have a look around you, as Peter Serafinich would say. That's a very niche joke for maybe like two people. Have a look around you and see if you can find some lost films, maybe in a basement. How was oh, this one oh, found? Whoa, How yeah, was whoa. it? Wait a minute. Whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa. Almost forgot Wait here. Wait a minute. What's yeah. the, the, the premise, David? The premise. Oh, 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 I'm so sorry. Okay, well, let's... let's this was lost. You know what? This was the one I even emailed the guy about. How is that? Oh. Oh, tell me about the email, David. Okay, so so this was a film restored by the Munich Film Museum, and I managed yep. to find out from who? The legendary uh, Stefan Drusler. Mm-hmm. Um, it was restored in the 2000s by him and uh, screened at the moment in 2010. And I found his info, and I emailed him, and then I got an email back immediately that basically said, uh, this inbox isn't being checked. So yeah. that was out sad. Of so, 
So, no interview forthcoming with Stefan Drusler, unfortunately to say. But I do have some more information. I was able to dig cool. up through his name. I was able to find some info. The uh, former director of the Munich Film Museum was quite happy when he conducted research on the Expressionist cinema and discovered the print of Algol in the Russian Film Archive and restored it in Munich. There's a quote from him. I'll keep reading here from Stefan Drusler about the restoration of Algol. Some years ago, I was invited to Latin America to take part in discussions about film restorations and to do a lecture in Chile at the Chilean Film Archive. Suddenly, on the last day, the head of the archive told me that they have some German nitrate films, and one was the strange science fiction film album. I was totally fascinated because it was an original nitrate print. It had already some decompositions and was not complete. Little pieces were missing, but we never knew how the films were tinted and toned until then. So we found an agreement with the Chilean Film Archive. We combined our elements with the and did the restorations as you can see them now. In the current version, the film is more complete. It has full image quality and has all the tinting and toning that the film had during its original distribution. We didn't even know that the film was distributed in Latin America, a little like Metropolis, when everyone was a little surprised that the print of the long Metropolis was discovered so in Latin cool. America. So... I don't know if that's another link as well, but obviously uh, a lot of German things turning up in Latin America. Yeah. In Metropolis, again, another link. German science fiction. Here. Big, big, big that. That's cool. Yeah. So, a nice bit of info that we have about the film being discovered there and being restored by Munich Film Museum. Uh, and, yeah. yeah, you know what? In, in the version we saw, which was that restoration, it did look really good, didn't it, Stephen? It did. It, it, it does look great. It is really good. Yeah, the tinting is all really good. Again, a mm. lovely craft of the silent era that has was somewhat lost yeah. over the years and has been coming back and being restored properly. Thank God, because it looks beautiful. I love tinted silent films. Mm. So that is how the film was rediscovered and returned to us. Well, there you go. Well, so normally I say to like check your basements and check your attics, but I'm also going to say check your nearest Chilean film archive as well, because you, you never know, you might find a German expressionist classic there. Um, but also check us out. Um, you can find some beautiful things that David Punch has written on twingbeats.com, obviously, and you can find yourself on, on Letterboxd, where you are David A. Punch. And you can find me on, on Letterboxd, so Stephen, it's got a PH in the middle, Stephenage, the Stephenage on Twitter, and if you want to support the things that I do, or hear me be more irreverent, I guess, than um, the stacks, which I do with my good friend Jack, um, you can find more stuff there on patreon.com slash the stacks on film. So, until next time, keep checking around you, and we'll come back with more tours through the actors of Expressionism, and we'll be expressing ourselves about the German greatness. <laughs>